Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2017 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 30th of September and 1st of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Collaborators and friends David Michaud and Luke Davies talked to Brita McVeigh about their working relationship on their latest project, Catch 22, and their respective experiences of working in the US. So what we're going to do is kind of, we'll move through time and duck and weave a bit, but we're going to, they've observed each other's process over time and informally kind of collaborated at points and have now moved towards something that they're co-executive producing and co-writing. So I think before we get to that, we'll go right back to the beginning because they both grew up in Sydney and then had some time in Melbourne but met in Sydney, Luke just clarified for me. So I'm quite interested in knowing where you were both at with your, with your work, really, um, when you first, first met. Like, had you written Candy? Had you finished film school? What was happening for each of you when you, were, when you first connected? I'd written Candy. Yeah, the book. And, um, y- yes, the, the book. And, this, and the film was, like, moving along towards becoming a film. And I met David, and he had, and he gave me early in the friendship. He gave me the very f- first ever draft of Animal Kingdom to read. So I guess that you said that my career was so- supposedly somewhere further than no, his. No, you were. I remember because I, we, I met Luke in Narcotics Anonymous. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. Okay, great. <laughs> oh. Perfect. Why? Everybody knows you were in it. No. I Let's just start them. as we mean to go on. <laughs> okay? This is an authentic... Fuck. Let's cut the pretense, guys. <laughs> I've ne- virtually never talked in public about... Oh, give me a break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you understand the word anonymous, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay, so it's, anyway. So early on in the friendship. Even as anonymous as it was, yes. Luke was like a celebrity in there because he'd written Candy, you know. And, that, and I, have, I remember reading that book when I, had, when I was in my own kind of world of hell and it had a, quite a profound effect on me. Yeah. Uh, and I gravitated towards Luke really quickly, you know. And Luke is also, you know, he's incredibly, you know, okay, so we'll pretend that place doesn't even exist, mm. but... Um, uh, but, you know, for people who are kind of getting out of that kind of mess, there is something incredibly powerful about the generosity and the time and the attention that you get from people who have been there before, and, uh, and Luke gave me that in abundance, you know, and it was quite, really quite an incredible experience for me. But, yeah, there was a very clear sense for me when I met Luke that Luke was... Uh, advanced. Wow, that's so interesting, the different perspectives. I don't remember seeing you as like, oh, this guy needs help. He's like, he's new and he's green and he's all fucked up. It was just like, this guy's really interesting and nice and and, uh, it's it's comfortable to hang with this guy, was what it sort of felt like. I don't have that memory of of your description of your sense of what was going on. So that's interesting. So after that initial encounter and then deciding that you wanted to be friends with each other. You obviously started, you were both writing screenplays at that point. 
and I guess figuring out how to write, both of you, in your different ways. Yeah. Did David read uh, um, drafts of Candy as well as you reading? No. No, I was just... I was only just beginning to worm my way into Luke's life. I don't think he tr trusted me with that. So, no, but literally, when I met you, you had, like, Candy was just, the movie was just about to happen. Yeah, it yeah. Wasn't. yeah it was, and it was suddenly lots of momentum. It was, and it was suddenly Heath Ledger. So it was suddenly real, and it was finance, and it was bang, bang, bang. Yeah, that's true. And I do remember that, yeah, that David, you know, he was basically working as, he started, like, as the guy putting the magazines into the, Envelopes at If If Magazine. Mm -hmm. He was like the mailboy, and then he became the assistant editor, and then he became the editor. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And David gave me his screenplay of what became Animal Kingdom. It was called J, the letter, the letter J. Mm. Yeah, and I do remember thinking, "Good for you." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had I had no idea that he would surpass me and just do such things of such glorious formal genius and beauty and like, you know, Animal Kingdom. By the time that became a film, it was like, it wasn't good for you. It was like, holy shit, mm. you're really good, you know. Mm. <clears throat> Thanks, mate. Do you, do you remember the first time you fed into a process of Luke's on a project of Luke's, even quietly? Luke's screenwriting career kind of so he he, he co-wrote Candy with Neil Armfield, the director, and uh, and that was. But I, I'm I'm guessing you were tinkering on screenplays in the background after that. But for those first early years that I knew Luke, he was predominantly a poet and a novelist. You know, he was mm. writing God of Speed, which is one of my favourite Australian books, and mm. um, and. That's what I knew Luke as that, uh, you know, and I, I know that Luke, he, I'm sure he would, have had he would have mentioned that he had aspirations to be a screenwriter, but he had other things to concentrate on in the meantime, and it wasn't really until you moved to LA that you started uh, yeah. devoting a lot of your attention to screenwriting, and it was about that time that, so it was quite a few years after I met Luke that I, you know, I, I, I would have read a screenplay that you wrote. Yeah, you know? true. But we were starting to watch a lot of films together in, that, in the early years of that friendship. Mm -hmm. and, that, and I was going through that period where I had developed this habit of, I, I just wanted to learn about screenplays, so I would find screenplays um, and watch movies that I liked and with the screenplay and, and physically try and follow the screenplay and the movie with a pause button and work out why, why these differences were happening and just to learn What's going on here? It's a really interesting exercise to do. Do you do think that. you actually did learn very practical things? Yeah, like a lot. Really? The only movie that that was impossible with was the screenplay of Thin Red Line. It's, mm. it's, there's, there's like zero relationship mm. between this 180-page screenplay and anything that you're seeing on the screen. You're just like, <laughs> but most screenplays, you can go, oh, okay, there's a big chunk missing there. Why is that chunk missing? And you learn stuff, yes. Can you think of one specific example where you really had a kind of Aha moment. Uh, no, <laughs> I wish I had thought of that question. <laughs> I remember the experience of doing that with Goodfellas was extremely interesting and revelatory, but I can't really tell you a moment of like, oh wow, that's, that's an interesting change. So did you, had you moved to Los Angeles before you made Animal Kingdom? Is that how it works? No, but I had been going there for a few years before then, just on and off. You just, I had friends who were living there and 
and I'd be going, I'd just go and do trips. I'd go there before I'd made anything. I don't know why. I knew I want, I'd already been to film school. I knew I wanted to, and I would go there and just, I'd go there and stay at a friend's house and just be frightened, you know, for. <laughs> yes, yes, I can understand that. But also, Luke, when did you, I'm just trying to get when you guys first kind of really sort of sunk in together in LA. Like, had you, obviously it was after you made Animal Kingdom, you were already there. How long had you been there for? Two years. It was 2009 that we sort of started informally kind of living together at the times that he was in LA. Because I found this little quote. Oh my God, here we go. Sorry. Yeah, from who? Luke, from Luke so you can relax. But about LA, where you said the initial year or two of trying to break into the business in Los Angeles was really just a situation of abject failure at every turn with every attempt. It was just a hustle and a scramble. Yeah. Yeah, it was really tough. I didn't even have a grand plan. I, I had a girlfriend, who, an Australian actress, who'd been in a couple of Australian movies, and we were in this relationship for six years. And so she was like, on the back of her couple of movies, she was like, I'm going to LA to do the try get an agent, get meetings with an agent thing. Yeah. And then Candy, by now, we're in 2007, and Candy had come out in 2006. So I was like, oh, I'm coming with you, and that'll be fun, and I too will try and get meetings with agents organized by my Australian agent. And, and in between the, the buying of the plane tickets and the going to America, she had her, or whatever, her version of relationship crisis, midlife crisis, I can't be in this relationship anymore. It was traumatic and painful. It was like, we both still went to America, rented different places, <laughs> were no longer in a relationship oh on a 90-day tourist visa. So in, in pain and misery and sleepless bewilderment, I took the meetings that my agent had organized and, um, in, and in that 90-day period, I was like, okay, I don't have a relationship or a life or a flat to go back to in Australia anymore, so, the, so I might as well experience the misery in more pure fashion <laughs> in a foreign country, because if I'm back in Sydney, it'll be triple misery because everything will remind me of everything. And so I purified the bewilderment and the pain, and I got another 90-day tourist thing. And then I started, and I'm like, fuck that. I'm not going back there for a while. I'm going to apply for this particular kind of working visa, and then it. So it was accidental in that sense, and yes, I couldn't. So he, so in that first six months, I got some meetings through that agent. I uh, through my Australian agent. Um, I learned that in Hollywood, there's this type of meeting which, at first, to a to an Australian person, feels like that's the I'm the best person in the world, and that's the best meeting that ever happened. <laughs> I'm so loved, and you. <laughs> And after a while, you realize that they are completely meaningless, this American style of meetings, which are basically like, great, well, we look forward to keeping talking to you. And it's like, you're only represented by an agent if an agent tells you they're going to represent you. Because I was walking out of these meetings going, I think I've got an agent. And it was, <laughs> my agent back in Australia was like, no, you don't. <laughs> and um, so then I got an agent like from the B level of agencies. And then I, she got me into like three or four rooms. I, did, I learned how to pitch. It was all, she threw some books at me. It was literally sacrificial lamb stuff. These meetings are not real. It's like, I've got a new client. Here's a bullshit thing, project that's never going to get off the ground. Let's get Luke in the room to meet these producers and see what that feels like. And then two weeks later, the great writer's strike of 2007 began, <laughs> which lasted six or nine months. It was huge. And, she, uh, and that agent said to me, I said, 
So if she said, there'll be jobs now because all the Writers Guild members are on strike. And I said, so just clarify something. If I take a job now because of the strike, mm. does that affect future member of the Writers Guild? <laughs> Which was like my aim mm. in life. And she said, oh yeah, you'll never be a member if you take jobs. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so that's it. I'm not taking any jobs. So for the next nine months, I couldn't have a meeting, couldn't deal with her, my agent, whatever. Finally, the writer's strike finishes. Two weeks later, she calls me and she's like, Luke, I'm so sorry to tell you this. I'm leaving the business. My 16-year-old daughter's gone to rehab for drug addiction. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing being an agent? I've got to concentrate on my 16-year-old daughter. I'm so sorry, and the other people in the agency, they think you're a nice guy, but they're not gonna continue representing you. So I was like, oh, fuck. And this was, by now we're in like 2008, and the next, I must have given that quote in around 2008 or nine, because really it was five years of abject misery and failure. <laughs> it was just like I couldn't get a meeting, I couldn't get a job, I couldn't get a glimpse at anything I had, you know. We, we live with Alex O'Loughlin, this Australian actor, He's, he, he mostly lives in Hawaii. He's the star of this TV show, Hawaii Five-O. But I, he let me fall eight months behind on my rent. It was $1,150 a month, and for eight months I was like, I can't pay my rent again. He was like, it's okay, I got it. That is deeply kind. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. It yeah, was incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, it was difficult the early years. And then things gradually, slowly started to change. Eventually, Beck Smith at UTA became mm. my agent, um, and um, things started to improve. So, David, you're, did you actually decide to move to LA at any point? Was it like, okay, that's it? I still haven't made that decision. Yeah, I, right. I, I'm, not, I can't, I'm not willing to. I kind of, I have, I, I was going there enough in the early days. I started making things. I started having those meaningless meetings that Luke was talking about <laughs> where you'd walk out in the street and go, that was amazing, but I, I kind of, I, I don't know what just happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, I'd do that, and then I'd made some, and then I made uh, a couple of shorts, and then I got signed by UTA after those shorts. After and then, Crossbow? Yeah. Mm. And then, um, uh, you know, I mean, Beck, I, I had known Beck for years already, and I, but I, even then I couldn't, she didn't, she'd only just started the agency, she didn't mm. have the power to sign me, and then finally she convinced uh, one of the other senior agents to watch the shorts. And, um, and then they, uh, they, I remember going, I had that short crossbow played at Venice and I went with it to Venice and that was so, so fun to be in Venice, but it was completely meaningless that I was there. It's like, you could almost feel at that festival like they would, like the, the, the shorts program was just this inconvenience that they had to put on, you know, it was, and it made no difference to my career whatsoever. Mm. And three months later, that same short went to Sundance and everything changed, you know, it was a... So and, that short got the wheels rolling for Animal Kingdom? Definitely. Yeah. And everything Beck was saying uh, in that previous session is true about, you know, for all of the, you know, apparent kind of Hollywood bullshit superficiality of... Hollywood, you know, it's my experience at that place is that you know you go to a place like Sundance and 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 agents at these big agencies, you know, the, uh, that they will go to the shorts programs and they are they are hunting for talented people, you know, they're very proactive with that stuff. And so anyway, they signed me like literally a week before the festival, and then um, and then the festival happened, and then I. And, and now I'm trapped at UTA. 
<laughs> well, you both are. No, but then, but I kept going. I was going and going and going and going to LA, doing these trips and sleeping on people's couches. And then on, when I was passing through on the way to Sundance with Animal Kingdom, I, you know, I'd always catch up with Luke and that kind of stuff. And then I'd, or I'd crash there for a week or two or whatever. And then Alex was heading to. Hawaii, because he'd just signed a seven-year contract on Hawaii Five O, and was terrified of terrified of having this commitment he'd made to Hawaii, and so didn't want to let his bedroom go. <laughs> and I said, "Okay, I'll look after it for you when I'm here, and I'll maybe even pay for it a little bit." And and then that turned into a formal thing, and now we're in our third house together. But I'm still, I still. After three months in LA or something, I start to just go a bit crazy and go, I want to go home. And then, and uh, and so yeah, I still I still don't I still pay tax in Australia, you know. I still don't spend any more than any more than six months of the year in LA. And he won't. He hasn't got his green card yet because if you get that, you have to technically going, speaking, man. you have to be there for more than six for six months and one day of the year. And I got a green card a year and a half ago because I'm like, okay, I'm here. That's fine. This is my this is home for now. Mm. No, I try. I move around a lot. We all come and go. Alex still pays his rent. He literally uses his bedroom like two weeks out of the year. <laughs> but, but it's, it's all totally his furniture emotional. in our house. And, yeah. yeah. Is it, um, <clears throat> was it moving into that house together, even though people are coming and going from the house, that meant that you've been able to slightly more closely observe each other's processes? Absolutely for me. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to just elaborate possibly a little bit on the other person's process? Oh, wow. From the outside? <laughs> Let's start it that way round. Yeah. Okay, who does that first? Um, let me think about David's work process. My observation, um, he... Um, weird technical stuff. I'm surprised at his ability to face a wall at a small desk in a corner. I, I, I'll always try and for, sort of... I'll put my back to the wall even if it means like putting the desk there. I just hate facing walls. So right. he doesn't care about w windows and light and direction of light. And I'm like super like, okay, the alignment has to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, like the dishwasher. Yeah, it's dish, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's highly functional, vaguely, you can barely see it, OCD stuff simmering away here and there. Um, you can barely see it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's highly functional. It's 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 because you're so self-aware. You know, it's like you're not. It never. I never feel like I'm. Oh, and I sometimes I feel like it's being inflicted upon me. But the, but actually, for the most part, it's all like very self-aware, very managed kind of. I just like things to be a certain Particular. way. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it comes with a little pre-apology. It's like, I'm aware, okay. Yeah. Bear with me. Okay, so you elaborate on yours, because I think there's some flow there. So you like order, spatially, Yeah. process-wise. Yeah. yeah, we could, oh, can we, let's throw that slide. So we're jumping ahead, right? No, I don't want to jump ahead oh, yet. I just okay. want to see what you've observed about each other before okay. we come together. Uh, David is uh, more comfortable with... Um, um, chaos, I guess. <laughs> like, That's uh, just not true. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like to. I've, I've now kind of. I've, I have worked out for me that there's. It's taken me quite a few years, but I've worked out how I, how what the most functional way for me to work is, and it's for. 
I started to realize, it's only been recently that I've, in the last few years, that I've realized that I fall apart in the afternoon. And so I wake up in the morning and I, it's all I, I just wake up, make coffee and start working. And I'm not allowed to look at the internet. I'm not allowed to look at my emails. And I just do that and I do it and I do it focused until like lunch or whatever. And then, and then that's it, down tools. I can do whatever I want for the rest of the day. Yeah. It's seriously like living with a kindergarten kid. <laughs> when we started actually working really formally on Cash 22 and we had an assistant and it was like we had a 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. day, he was freaking out because he has his nap at 3 o'clock every day. <laughs> and we were like, I was like, just always push on, push on, push on. And there were some days where he'd be like, guys, I'm sort of thinking. I'm like, don't say that, don't do that. <laughs> But I, I just wonder also before, again, before we go to a shared process, do, have you observed that really basic things like, do you, do you see each other break down scripts when you're trying to piece together structure in ways that are different from each other? Like, do you work, do either of you work particularly with whiteboards when you're alone or do you have cards or how is it different? Luke has same? a... Uh... I think we're both similar in that we both need to outline really quite deep in a detailed way yeah, before right. we start writing. I just like to know what I'm writing before. I find the writing more fun if I know I've done that hard preparatory work beforehand, you know, mm. that you've nailed down the bits, the building blocks of what you're about to write, and then the writing itself just becomes like colouring in, you know, it's just fun. Mm. But I feel it's that hard work you need to do first. I think we both do it in that way. The thing that Luke does that's kind of... Amazing, I've been watching him do it now on a few projects and then I shared the process with him on this one was that Luke, I think because he had a deadline once that he thought was almost unachievable. I mean, Luke's relationship to deadlines is different as well. Luke still treats deadlines like you're at school and it's your assignments due, you know? And I go, we're grown, we're adults now. It's like, there's, just tell them it's gonna be a week late, you know? You can... <laughs> but Luke will be like, no, it's due, it's up, and he'll stay up all night for three nights running and stuff. And... But so he hit a deadline that he actually thought was unachievable, and he, got, he has uh, an assistant, this like this super sharp woman named Martha, who uh, had just been helping him out with stuff, and he got her in and said, all right, we're gonna try this new process. And it's basically Luke sits on the couch they plug the computer into the TV, HDMI. Martha does the typing, and Luke just speaks the script while watching it appear on the TV. And it's extraordinary. I've just watched it. He can get things written so quickly because when you're sitting in a room with someone there on the clock, you don't do that thing that I do, which is go, oh, my God, that was a great line of dialogue. I deserve a cigarette and a time out. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> And it's, it's extraordinary, and he does it. You swear by it now. You do it all. You'll do everything that way. Yeah, spreading like a gospel. <laughs> we had, Lion was, we did all this, when the Oscars were coming, we had all this amazing success. It was so much fun. In the last few weeks of Lion, I started being in panels with all of the nominees of the best adapted and the best um, original screenplay. You know, all these wonderful directors, the Moonlight guys and the <coughs> Manchester by the Sea guys and... So then, inevitably, the person would say, can you each tell us something about your writing method? And mm. to, to me, the most concrete answer was like, I, I've stumbled onto this amazing method. It works for mm. me for these reasons. And so all these other people like, 
um, I'm blanking on people's names, but, but those people, they were like, oh, I'm going to try, it's called the Martha method now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works. It works I, for various I, it's been, I mean, I've had a something vaguely similar, not, I've never had it that, that method, you, you own the copyright to that <laughs> method, don't worry, but the, those couple of co-writing experiences I've had before where you're sitting in a room just always being amazed at how quickly you can solve problems when mm. there's just one other brain in the room with you, mm. that if I put it into my own problem-solving machine, it'll just, uh, you know, whatever, it just, just takes a long time to cook. But you have someone else in the room with you and you can't, you're not just going to sit there and stare into space. You're going to talk the problems through. And having, it's when, you're, when that person who's there working with you is, you know, who's in the, in the Martha method, who is there, who's smart and is looking at you and waiting for the problems to be solved. And your relationship with Martha is now such that she will actively participate in the solving of those problems when she is as familiar with the material as you are. Yeah, we understand that she is so sharp, smart, um, uh, the best kind of proactive participant, way beyond, she's not just, it's mm -hmm. not just dictation, that we, we will aim, uh, we will seek to get her money and, a, and like an, a, an associate producer credit that moves her up the ladder. Because she's got mm. her own ambitions as an actor and she's married to a Danish cinematographer, so she kind of runs his career, he's, he's at the level of beginning to make commercials and stuff like that, mm. so she's got a busy life, but mm. producerially, if this show that we're working on ever gets up and running, mm. we, we believe in her and we want to reward her and we want to yeah, keep yeah. pushing her forward and, yeah. But never lose her at the same time. No, I, we, I, yeah. I, she, she's so talented that mm. I, we will, I will lose her, we mm. will lose her, she'll go on and do great things. So had you guys been, um, well, let's move towards that project now, had you guys been... Um, uh, circling each other in a way to want to do something directly together prior to Catch-22? Very much. Yeah, we have. Been I mean, we, we've been years? reading each other's stuff and giving each other notes on each other's scripts yep. and then we took one step further towards it in a way when I was, you know, I had, uh, I, um, when Plan B, when Brad Pitt's company came to me with the book that War Machine was based on, I just knew, I just had this feeling. I wanted to, I knew, I had been vaguely observing your experiences with Martha, but I also just, you know, the outlining is the hardest, hardest part. And I basically paid Luke to read the book and then for uh, 10 mornings to just sit with, I'd set up a whiteboard in the living room and just let just to, he just to, I paid him to sit there and let me just start rambling, mm. and and he would bounce back at me every now and then, and and blah blah blah. But just it just made that outlining process so much smoother. It's there's uh, you know there's something so rewarding about having other smart people in the room with you when you're yeah. sorting that kind of stuff out. But here's a difference in our working methodologies. Yeah. When we did that, when we, after 10 very pleasant flowing mornings, we wound up with this very dense early war machine structure on the whiteboard. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you then went away and there was fast momentum suddenly, as you were talking about yesterday, a Brad Pitt thing fell apart and it was like, if you deliver this script, some interesting fast, some interesting things could happen, whatever. The point is that David then went and really quickly wrote the first draft of the screenplay, basically based on the transcription of the whiteboard. Am I correct in that? We had a plan to write a treatment, 
and maybe you're going to be busy. No, I did write one. Oh, you did? I had to. How many pages? New Regency. Yeah, how many pages? New Regency insisted. I'd never written one before and it was, I, was, I think it was about 15 pages or oh, something. Right, okay. So. Did it feel like a productive task in itself? Like, did yeah, you Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it did. Mm. I mean, I like to, like I was saying before, I like to outline before I start writing anyway, mm. but I would never put it into a doc, the form of a document that was to be read by anyone other than me, normally. Mm. Oh, I do that all so, the time. So, so to... To, for the, this thing for New Regency, I just basically turned that dot point outline that I would have done anyway into something intelligible. You know. Yesterday you said, <clears throat> when you were talking about Animal Kingdom, that there was a moment where you figured out what the heart of that story was about and then structure started to flow from there. But you said, the two questions you said when you were talking about it was, took me a while to get to why am I making this movie, what's this story about? And I just wonder if those, those very necessary questions that everyone asks themselves when they start a project, is that something that you, and you may have different answers to this, you guys, that you, you're, you're clear or murky on at different stages on different projects, or is it always that you have to know it before you even start an outlining process, or do you use the outlining process to figure that out, or does it, like, when does that, or does that, I mean, I'm just offering, like, a smorgasbord of options here. Well, I've got a, a quick answer to that for me. Yeah. A, a real stab at an approximation would be that 70% of it is, yeah, I've kind of got to know it before I begin the outline. Yeah, right. Some, like, one-sentence master version of, what, what the fuck is this about? For and you. Yeah, and 30% yeah. is um, in the, the journey of moving towards creating a good outline, I'm going to find additional stuff or clarify what clarify is it the, about. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, yeah, same for me too. I don't, it's, it's definitely not the way I started working when I first yeah, yeah. started writing. It would, but like I was saying yesterday, initially it would just be like, just start writing cool shit, you know, and mm. just silly. But then, uh, and then it's just, uh, you know, when I started to realise how important it is to know what your thing is actually about, and so I'm just what its DNA is, you know, it's, mm. it's to taking it, you know, can, I, I'm aware of the fact that when I talk about this stuff, sometimes it can feel like kind of funding body application stuff, you know, that you've mm. got to, you know, you need a one line, what no. are the themes and that kind of stuff, no, no. and it, it's not as dull as that. No, There's no, something no. really quite profoundly <laughs> genetic about knowing what that core idea is. And so, and then I went from never th even thinking about that to thinking about it simultaneously and then having to retroactively re-engineer. Mm. And now I'm like Luke, I just, I, I, I know, I don't even have, consider it my job to work that out. I just know if, if I'm gonna write something, if I'm excited about the idea of writing something, it's because I know no, what it's about. Yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, but that's come over time. Yeah. <clears throat> just as a throw out to the emerging in the room, it takes it can take time, right? Yeah, yeah. To get that kind of it's kind of an economic thing that happens with time, isn't it? You work it out at the you don't waste the time inside the writing process itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the big and the small levels at the biggest levels of existential. What's your philosophical attitude to life? Time compresses, life gets shorter, things mm. speed up but you get better at what you're doing yeah. and you want to be more efficient at what you're doing mm. because it's fucking exciting and time's running out, you know. So it's like get efficient, find out ways. So how do you, how do you think your curiosity is aligned here with Catch-22? Like what, what's at the heart of that project that 
these guys are co-executive producing and co-writing a six-part television series adaptation of Catch-22. Um, and what is there? A, what was the moment? How did it? You both managed to enter that work and go, oh yeah, that's one for us together. Uh, this 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 producer from this company, Anonymous Content, who had made True Detective, came to us and said, um, "Oh wait a minute, there's there's a bit of this story that's difficult to tell in public." Okay, so anyway, yeah, this yeah. guy <laughs> came to us and said. Um, we think you two are really nice guys, and we want to work with nice people. Really? <coughs> and have you got any ideas? And we were like, so we, we went away from that meeting and looked at each other and said, okay, that guy's for real, right? Like, he really put True Detective together. So we did our research, and people said, yeah, that guy's for real. And then we were like, that's amazing. We, we had this opportunity to, and we had two different ideas for a TV series. And we had a meeting, and we both talked through our ideas. And you had a meeting with each other or with someone else? No, with else? this guy. With the guy, yeah. Like a few weeks later. Yeah. And then um, at the end of this meeting, uh, we were literally putting our coats on. And I said, I got one more idea. Ever since I was 16 years old, I've loved this novel. And, and if we're in supposedly the golden age of television, then why hasn't anyone done an adaptation of Catch-22? And uh, Richard, the, Richard, the producer, and David both went, Oh, yeah. I think I read that book when I was 16. Like, you either did or you think you did. That's basically the story yeah, yeah. with Catch-22. And yeah, yeah. Um, See, I have a different memory. Do you? Yeah, mine is that my memory is of you having... Uh, you having... You, you were thinking about Catch-22 because you had before that, you, knowing that I was making War Machine and that, that it was going to be a film that ex was like a, like a schizophrenic two-tone movie that was about like the absurdity of mm. the executive level of the, mil of the mil military and the tragic consequences of the hubris of it. And yeah. that you'd said, you, you know, have you, when was the last time you read Catch-22? And I went, you know what, I've never actually read it. And you went, oh man, you should read it. Because I think you thought that it would be just a good thing for me to read. And then it was out of that that uh, you had started, we had, but mainly you. <laughs> had started thinking about what no one's ever, like maybe the reason why the Mike Nichols movie, as beautiful as it is, doesn't work is because it actually needs the larger canvas of. All right, if, but if I reverse engineer from my absolutely clear memory that there was this moment where I said, <laughs> where I said to Richard, if we're in the golden age of television, whatever, then I couldn't have, then that stuff must have come after. That's my, in my memory, it's like that was the moment. But, Origin stories. I think you'll find them. <laughs> okay, but what I'm taking from this is you were feeling quite connected to the book, and you either. No, I hadn't thought about the book in a long time. I, I was. Okay, so David's version of the. Okay, so yeah, all right. So that. Right. So you didn't recommend the book yeah, to just David. Yeah, no, just just suddenly occurred. Yeah, to yeah. You. <laughs> so that didn't. <laughs> Are we starting to hear sort of low-level dementia here? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll have to discuss this more, because if the show gets made, we'll have a lot of public things, and we're going to have to work out yeah. what's the true event. I've got a quote, guys. Maybe we can just agree to disagree, and that'll be I've got be a quote. <laughs> so, David, so this is obviously all associated with you doing the press for War Machine, but I just wonder what... You, you have said, America has a long and rich history of war comedy that seems to have just dried up, so it felt important to all of us to bring the critical scrutiny of satire back to the conversation. 
So that was obviously relevant to War Machine. But I wonder if, is there something about that also that is there in the DNA of Catch-22 for you for two? Both. Yeah. For both of you? That it's actually now is the hour for some seriously good satire. True, but I, I mean, the thing, the thing for me, for, first and foremost, the Catch-22 is just that, you know, that, you, that experience of reading that... The, 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 jo the Joseph Heller's writing is so extraordinarily rich and the characters that he has created are so... The absurdity of it is so joyful and yet it's tragic. I, it's the bringing of satire into the artistic representation of war, war for me feels more important in a contemporary sense. That's you know, what I there mean. will be yeah, yeah. A dis the fact that this is still about World War II, there is gives it a distance that yeah. I don't think is quite as powerful as I mean there's you know the war, war machine felt dangerous because it was for many people it was like uh, yesterday. Yeah, well, also because it feels like you're mocking an institution that we're now, we've now been taught to treat with great unwavering deference mm. and reverence, you know, which is not the way people used to think about it, you know. That yes, you should be, uh, um, you know, that, that there is a, 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 um, a, a debt that we owe those kind of, those young men and women who have to go and do the dirty work. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the institution as a whole is uh, immune from mm. incredible uh, scrutiny, if not criticism, that there are people who need to be held to account within that institution, blah, blah, blah. You put that in a contemporary sense mm. and it feels like you're, you're it feels like you're, you're, you're you know, it feels incendiary. Um, but it didn't always used to be that way. And, you know, so, so for me, Catch-22, my interest in it isn't actually necessarily about, even though there are definite parallels you can draw between what was happening then and what's yeah. happening today. For me, it's just a more, more love of, like, a like great, unique world and great characters and, um, yeah. And what happened in three days, Richard Brown came back and said, okay, I've done my homework. Paramount have got the rights. They've had them since 1961. No one's been thinking about the novel for a long time. And Paramount are interested in you two guys if you want to, like, come up with a pitch, a show, create it, whatever. That's kind of how it began. And then, so then David was like, oh, I better read it. And then... Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> And then, if my memory serves me correctly, um, <laughs> if, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I kept pushing for like one or two months. I was like, you've got to read the book. And he's like, yeah, 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 I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And then uh, finally he said, okay, I'm 100 pages in. He's I'm, just making shit no, up now. I may, have, I may have this email. And if that's the case, then we end this, we end this debate now. But, uh, he said, I'm 100 pages in. It's one of the best novels I've ever read. And then one week later, he says, okay, I finished it. It's the best novel I've ever read. And I definitely I... didn't say that. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Is... I said it was in my top five. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but go on. No, oh, no, keep, that's please it. keep and going. Then, <laughs> and then, then it was like... And then it was all... Then it got moving, and we're still in the middle of all the moving parts, and we don't exactly know what its future is. Except that uh, a year and a bit later, we have written, co-written all six episodes. Mm -hmm. We think that we, we're very proud of them, and um, and we're moving forward into some kind of future for it. And so let's let's 
Let's go to the <clears throat> slideshow. Oh, yeah, so um, <laughs> this is um, the room we created. This is the Catch-22 room. Oh, we can look. Oh, no, we meant to oh, be yeah. able to look. Oh, it doesn't. Well, anyway. Oh, yeah. So uh, lots of, in the center there, that's a window. That's trees outside that window above that old air conditioner. That's Joseph Heller. Our, that's our shrine, our inspiration. <laughs> and then all around it, there's like actors and there's just stuff, just, you know. For inspiration. Down on the desk here, that's our actual 1945 B-25 Mitchell bomber training manual that I found on the internet for $250, uh, which, was, which is one of the ones that Joseph Heller would have been training with when he was doing that in 1944, 45. Uh, and then we, there's a whiteboard behind where the camera is, and then there's this whiteboard. And on the whiteboards, we have things like, this is an example of, um, these are the six episodes from left to right. And then these are the sort of themes that are going on. Like, what are the scenes that happen in the sky? What are the scenes of Yossarian alone in quiet moments? What are the scenes of um, sort of, you know? So one of the things that Luke did that was, uh, that I'm kind of, We've, that I'm kind of semi-reluctant to even talk about because the thing, you know, we haven't made it yeah, and yeah, we haven't yeah. even set it up anywhere yet. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I feel like this is bad juju to be even, but anyway, yeah. <clears throat> who cares? Uh, yeah, you may be witnessing a conversation about a thing that never happens <laughs> for two people on a downward career trajectory. <laughs> Could be. Don't manifest that. <laughs> <coughs> I was saying I just got to finish thinking about that. Okay. Um, the, uh, but what Luke had to do, anyone who's familiar with the book would know that it's so kind of like amazingly structurally convoluted. Uh, and Mike Nichols' film, one of the reasons why it isn't wholly successful, as much as I actually love it, uh, is because it packs that convolution, that same structure, into two hours. I mean, to anyone who isn't wholly, wholly, wholly familiar with the book, the movie makes no sense, you know, mm. I think. Mm. So what Luke and I decided to do, uh, and that Luke actually did, was um, unpick the book completely, spread it out on the floor, and then put it back together in chronological order, uh, which was... Uh, which I didn't participate in at all and was a gargantuan task. It was, it was a year of pain. It was a year to do that. Yeah. It was really, really... The book, that book is as dense as a... It's mad and it was really difficult to take it apart, reorder it, and then work out what was important. Right, so you weren't even culling at that point. You were just reassembling. Yeah. And then... Yeah, right. And, we, I, you know, in the very beginning it was like, how are we going to do this? And I said, well... There's 44 chapters, so let's call that 44 episodes and three years. <laughs> In the end, we've landed on, it's one season, it's six hours, and that's it. That's what we need to tell this story beautifully. One of the reasons for that is that what you discover is that a lot of the brilliance of the book is very literary and, mm. and cerebral, but mm. not cinematic. And um, there's stuff that just wouldn't sort of work, and it was a matter of finding out what's, in, what's important. And then I began compressing and writing a kind of Bible. He was busy with War Machine for like a year. <clears throat> and, um, or three. Or three, yeah. And then, um, and then we wrote the first episode and a sort of series outline. And, uh, and then I knuckled down for six months alone and wrote the other five episodes and then 
we spent many more months getting into the deep engine room of it all and co-writing and re I mean co-writing slash rewriting all the episodes. For how many months was that process when you were both together? Uh, it was it was three intensely. It was say four four spread over six. And so this is working <coughs> with Martha too, the both of you. Yeah, at this point it's like it's like Monday to Friday, sometimes Monday to Saturday. Martha pretty much every day. At a certain point, it was all of us together, nonstop, office job, three months, every day. And I have my nap at 3 p.m. <laughs> he was good. No, he started to get into the habit. At least two or three times a week, he would resist the nap and keep, <laughs> keep working. But you guys have both got film projects. He's flexible. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously. Um, you guys have both got film projects that you've been doing alongside or around. Like, the craft of doing six episodes, how's that? What skill set is, um, or muscles are growing that perhaps you, or I don't know, I mean, can you see what I'm getting at? Like, how is that different or for you guys? Being experienced with film and then coming to episodic at this point, just on a craft level. Completely different for me. I'd never done television before. It was completely just taking a big leap into the, into the dark. And it was like, it, was it like, okay, well, I'll figure out how it works for me, or was it like, do I need to get some rules here in play that might be different? Or? No, the year of pain was, I'll figure out how, I'll, I'll work out how to do this. Yeah, right. I mean, I was working on another thing. The year was interrupted by other mm. things that I was working on. Mm. And Paramount and anonymous content getting occasionally impatient. Like, how are you going with that outline? I was like, yeah, you'll have it in probably two months. And then five months later, they'd be like, how are you going with that outline? <laughs> like, it's very close. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. And yeah, for you. Yeah, what about you, David? I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of treated it the same in that, because I've never written. Oh, I have actually, but I don't, it was long, 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 long time ago. I've never, I haven't, don't have a whole, I don't have a, a whole lot of experience in television. And, uh, but because this thing was only six hours long, it actually became, felt easy to think about it as one whole contained thing. Yeah, you know? right. A giant movie. Yeah, that, that, that six it, climaxes. That, yeah, exactly. That, that exists in six, six chapters. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> uh, that, so I, you know. That and who knows? That might be the wrong way to be thinking about it. But that it felt mm. it felt right to me to be thinking about it in that way. So David was like super interactive with my progression through these early stumbling stages of trying to unravel and put this thing back together. He was always then in the next stage of the feedback. But the really pleasant experience that we discovered was finally when it's like, okay, here we go. We're about to do this thing. We're about to begin working every day and together. together. And that um, this, I think we would mutually agree, has been a beautiful um, discovery that we can sit in a room together all day, every day, mm -hmm. and, um, not, and, and, there's, and it's a low ego flow of mm -hmm. um, very collegiate kind of, there's no moment where a choice is made that he takes over a line or that I take over a line or it's just this, it's fun mm. and it's warm and it's um, exciting. Because it's not just coloring in, you know, like I find the experience of that, there's the blank page and you're creating stuff, transcendent. Mm. 
Like I, I got so many neuroses and anxieties in my life, and if I create enough structure around it, in the center of that, when I'm actually writing, they've gone away. Mm. And so to learn that I can do this with a really good friend, mm. and for you, you might speak of your experience of what it felt like, but man, it's fun if it works. Mm. That's what I mean by coloring, you know. I don't mean that it's easy, I just mean that I don't experience it as pain. Mm. Even mm. the stuff that's hard is still fun, yeah. you know. But, that, but uh, before that starts, like, you know, your year of hell, which we call it, which I didn't have to be a part of, like that for me, I just kept looking at what you were doing and going, oh, crap, I'm so glad I'm not in that. <laughs> I'm, so not, I'm so glad I'm not in that room, you know, because that fits just, it just hurts, it's hard, it sucks. You wonder, I'm sure, as I'm sure you did on a number of occasions, you start going, I don't think this is even possible. Yeah, but um, it feels so worth it now. Like, I don't care about the pain anymore. Because we're really proud of, we think the six episodes are really good and we think they're like shooting scripts and, and we think the series works and, and it's, we hope it's going to happen. But uh, it's like it's worth it all now, you know, because we solve problems and we love our characters. We love our Yossari and most of all our main character, but there's so many great characters in it. And, yeah. Okay, what we're going to do is have some questions, um, but because we're in this massive space, and rather than getting you to shout, we're going to have these little microphones here. So if people want to ask questions, please make your way down to the little microphone on the stand. Even if you're shy, this is your chance. And it's perfectly fine to be waiting behind someone so we can see who's coming. It just will save us time. Um, and then we'll just... Stephen, you're all too shy. Yep. You better have a backup plan. <laughs> yeah, better have a backup plan. Should we Don't show? worry, I wouldn't do it either. And I take this as a clear sign the room's full of really cool people, because cool people, <laughs> cool people don't ask questions. Oh, yeah, should we just have a look while we wait? Oh, no, that's the person. That's the yeah, microphone. Yeah. Okay, oh, okay, great. Use the microphone, please. <laughs> um, I can just talk loud if you want. No, the microphone is... Microphone's good. Um, I thought it was interesting, one of the things you mentioned, um, David, about how you, how you went about paying um, Luke when he went through one of the processes with you. So, like, as friends, like, I know when you're starting out, like, for me being quite young, people expect me to do everything for free, which uh. are kind of, like, the experience. So how do you go about being friends and then also being, like, professional about getting paid or... It's just about, I was the same when I first started for a long, long, long time after film school, I did everything for free. You know, I wrote, I worked on, I wrote feature scripts for free and just did everything for free and I just accepted that that was a thing that had to happen. And I had a lot of people who, I, who worked with me and we all just did stuff for free. We just wanted to stay engaged. But when we got to, you know, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, Luke... Um, Luke, you know, maybe back in those days of the, you know, serious privation or whatever that you were talking about before, you know, I probably could have gotten him at a real a discount rate. Hmm. But uh, <laughs> I'm not unaware of the fact now that, like, Luke's got serious shit going on and his, his time and expertise are incredibly valuable and I wanted him to take that time seriously and... I could afford to do it, you know. I was being paid to write this screenplay and I just thought there's serious value for me in, in doing that, you know. But there are... Uh, um, is that kind of answering the question? Yeah. 
But yeah, no, I, sometimes I get, it's like, it's so weird, that thing where you, you start to, at what point do you stop doing things for free? And I don't mm. have, there is, no, there is no answer to that. You just feel it in your bones, mm. you know? Yeah. Usually, usually it's because you don't have to anymore. You know? mm. Do you guys, are you able to, um, to elaborate a little on the projects that you are also, like the project you have coming up? Next year, your other film you're working on, are you allowed to? Um, oh, God, I don't know why I get so superstitious. So it's don't so if weird. you don't want to. But you have another film that you're making next year. Can yeah, and that I wrote with yeah. Joel Edgerton and that, we, um, and that I had that glorious experience, again, of being in a room with someone and just having the rewarding uh, <coughs> the bounce, mm. you know? Um, yeah. And Luke's got lots of things. Wow, you're keeping that minimalist. Yeah, wow. he is, eh? I was like, yep. Mystery okay. man. <laughs> um, I have a question if you guys are open to oh, it. Oh, oh, it's a bit off topic, but I'm from Los Angeles and I've lived in New Zealand for a while and I've had quite a few cultural collisions that were, you know, they were pretty bad. So have you guys had any, like in Los Angeles, that you just went, oh my God, this is like really uncomfortable? If you don't mind sharing, I'm just curious. Uh, well, there's a, there's a cultural clash of... Uh, all sorts of aspects of American life that are extraordinarily different, that seem on the surface to be similar. There's some vaguely West. No, it's really different. But I'll just very briefly, in script terms, um, you know, I've written these American scripts and they seem to work, but it's amazing the tiny phrasings that you get wrong, the tiniest things, the difference between how you're doing and how you're going. So when I'm on automatic and I'm like dictating to Martha, Martha, an American, often says, what does that mean? Like, and it'll be something that's so just like, what do you mean what does that mean? It just means what it means. It's like, and then you learn that certain things are Australianisms and Americans don't have a clue what they are. So like, uh, and I, I tend to put a lot of those in my scripts, but then there's enough people reading your scripts to pick them up. Like, is this Australian? And I'm like, oh, sorry, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, would, I mean, I have the, just not necessarily about script, but just like cultural stuff that you feel like, I felt like I had to navigate was, I remember having to be taught, you go when you, you know, in the early day, especially after Animal Kingdom, and you go on the meeting circuit and you're doing like kind of five of them a day for f six weeks or whatever, and, and every meeting, I actually quite like doing it because it's good to meet people and, and because they all feel really positive. Um, but you, every single one of them has exactly the same narrative structure. Like you get in there they, and you talk about the weather and the traffic and where you're staying and then, uh, um, and then, um, and then they'll go, okay, so if your movie, Animal Kingdom, blew us away. <laughs> <laughs> and for the first like five meetings, you go, oh man, this is, I'm really blowing people away. And then, <laughs> and then you kind of, uh, and then you talk about the movie and then, you, um, and then like, you talk about what they've got going on and then you wrap it up and then, and then it's like the kind of weirdly exactly the same. Mm. But the thing I had to learn really quickly is to not, Australians, and I'm assuming New Zealanders too, don't take compliments very well. And so my instant reaction every time when that your animal kingdom blew uh, blew us away would be to go, 
Yeah, I mean, it's got some problems, you know. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is so the same as New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when I'd say that, they'd look at me like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually had to have, I can't remember who it was, but someone, um, someone said to me, you have got to stop doing that. It just doesn't, it doesn't translate here. It's yeah, like, yeah. just take the compliment, say thank you and then move on, you know? But don't feel like you need to, like, you know, uh, disabuse them of their, uh, their belief in your talents. Can, you know? do, you, do you feel you can do that now, comfortably? Actually, t- um, still doesn't come naturally to me, but yeah, yeah I can just do it and, and yeah, I can be better at it. Just, just going, thank you. Thank you. Wow, that is a big challenge, I think, as a person from this. It hurts. Well, the ups- yeah, it does. The, the, the upside of American positivity is mm. that the weird toxicity of the tall poppy syndrome does not like kind of hit you and hurt you in different ways. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is a. I, I can't speak for New Zealand. No, it's the same here. Yeah. Mm. So it's like the I I. Um, Yes, there's a sort of procedural <laughs> fakeness of the way meetings work in Hollywood, but there's also a genuine quality of Americanness that is uh, that is um, non-ironically positive mm. and real <laughs> and be- and beautiful. Like yes, yeah, there well is, but there, then there's also a kind of harsh fake yeah there's... thing that goes on with pleasantries. Yeah, sure. And you do crave the irony too, in my experience yeah. in the yeah. states. Because I remember, actually, I know it is true of here, because I remember Taika telling me once when he came back, he'd been in L.A. for a long time, it was after he'd made Boy, and he mm. said the very first person he saw at the immigration desk or whatever went, oh, you're that guy who made Boy. And Taika went, yeah, I am. And he goes, yeah, that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> and Taika said that it was like both a kind of just like slap in the face, welcome home, but also just actually incredibly refreshing. And after. reassuring, yeah. <clears throat> we have a question over here. I just uh, wanted to ask, and, it, and maybe it spins quite well off that question, just in terms of having moved to LA and finally found your ways in establishing things there, what that means in terms of program, uh, projects you're creating that feel Australian or more of home, in terms of the work that you're looking to develop, do you feel that you're wanting still to create projects that are set back at home and that are made there? Or how does your voice and the kind of new things that you develop fit in around your cultural identity, I guess? I don't want one thing any more than another thing. And I, my cultural identity is complex. Like, it's really Australian, but I want to participate at the highest levels possible in an international industry. Um, to, start, to answer your question, the story that the good fortune that I've had recently is that I'm writing a Tom Hanks Western at the moment, and it's and I'm and it's based on a novel that came out last year called News of the World, and I'm absolutely loving the experience, and I'm hoping to write a really good Western for Tom Hanks to star in, and um, so I, it's not about choices of like I'd like to do this or that in Australia or here or there or anywhere. It's about I'm just going with the momentum of my own flow and good fortune at the moment. My good fortune happens to recently come out of Lion. It's kind of changed my life, given me choices and so on. So I'm just trying to learn how to deal with this amazingly wonderful, positive situation to do with making right choices now that I have some. Yeah. Mm. I don't think about cultural... I don't think, you know, what I, I don't, I never, actually never think about my cultural identity. I don't know what it is. I don't think it's healthy to think about it. But what I do, 
like Luke, I feel like I have this incredible opportunity. I want to make, take advantage of it to paint on a big canvas. Uh, and it's difficult to do that when you're making films that, you know, it's like an Australian film may as well be in uh, Uzbek, you know what I mean, for the international market. Yeah, except for Lion, remarkably successful film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> You're right, that was extraordinary. I don't think know that anyone, and that, but that's because you make everyone cry. <laughs> <laughs> but, they, um, but the one thing I do know as well, when I think about the Australian films that I would like to make, I don't actually have any specific ideas, but there are things that would, I know will make me want to return there one day, and they are the things about that place that are Peculiar, you know. I love the language. I love the way, the the kind of but the, just the 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 mess that we make of the English language, and <laughs> and I like and something stuff that's to do with the landscape and the 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 great the great wild emptiness of it. And mm. I know there will be something in that world that will pull me back there one day. Mm. <clears throat> and on that note. Um, I'm going to say thank you to you both. Thank you for having me. Very you. much. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and JNA Productions. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Auckland Tourism Events and Economic Development, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover is provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Beer.